We are halfway through our series in the Old Testament book of Esther, a remarkable story about how the Jewish people were saved through the courage of one Jewish woman who actually became queen of Persia. And in that, there are many lessons for how we learn to live a life of faith in a disconnected and chaotic world. And today we come to a very important theme for every one of our hearts, and that is the theme of approval. It's power and it's role that it plays in our lives, how it shapes our attitudes and even decisions. This is a, an issue upon which we need to learn, grow, and be changed. We're going to cover the whole chapter, so I'm going to pray for us now. I'll introduce the theme, and we'll read as we go along. So would you join me in prayer as we invite the Holy Spirit to be our teacher this morning? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are aware of and concerned with all that is going on in the lives of these men and women in this room, for those who are joining us online, those who are sitting outside. And we ask this morning that you would speak into our hearts, that you would transform the way that we see favor and approval from others, and that you would lead us to the favor that comes from you in the gospel. I pray that the result would be freedom, healing, courage, and compassion. So Spirit of God, would you speak to us now? We ask in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. Well, chances are you have heard of Alexander the Great legendary leader with at least one chapter dedicated to him in every history book, one of the rulers of the, one of the largest empires ever known. But chances are you are less familiar with a man named Diogenes. He was a philosopher in ancient Greece who belonged to a group who it was rumored were free from all the common worries of the culture, free from the need for the approval and opinions of people. And on one day, the two of them met. As Alexander the Great was passing through the ancient city of Corinth, he sought out this famed philosopher. And when Alexander and all of his troops found him, Diogenes was surprisingly dressed in rags with no money at all whatsoever, sitting near a tree, sunbathing as you would if you were a philosopher in those days. Fascinated, Alexander, the most powerful man in the world, stood in front of him and offered to grant him one favor. Said, I will grant you anything that you want. Is there anything that you want from me? I will do it. And Diogenes famously replied, actually, yes, if you could step out of the way, you're blocking my son. The soldiers standing nearby, knowing that their ruler has just been slighted, they feared an outburst of anger. But Alexander only laughed and said, if I were not Alexander, I would most certainly like to be Diogenes. <laughs> Why? Because there's a freedom that he admired. And I think many of us would share this desire to live in such a way that we are free from the need of other people's 
approval. And yet if we're honest this morning, many of us, we all tend to live our lives trying very hard to please someone, trying very hard to make ourselves acceptable in the hope of winning their favor, in the hope of winning or gaining their approval. For some of us right now, it's a boss or a peer in your work. A lot of your effort is not just going into doing a good job in your work. You want, perhaps even need, their approval. For many of us, it's our parents. It doesn't matter how old you are. Some of you might be an adult with your own kids and you're still trying to win your father's approval. You still fear your mother's disapproval. Maybe it's from friends. Maybe it's from your spouse. Maybe it's from your own children. In many ways, our energy is put towards trying to earn approval. I was struck by this when I read a book written by an atheist philosopher. The book title is called Status Anxiety, which is a very apt description of our culture. And he said this, entire societies have made the maintenance of status and more particularly of honor a primary task of every adult. The intense need to be viewed favorably by others may still be foremost among our priorities. I think that's true for our culture, and I think it's true for many of us, even if you're a believer in Christ. Well, this morning, I want to remind us, the Bible tells us that it is possible to live a life full of courage and conviction and compassion that does not depend on the approval of others, nor does it disappear when they disapprove. Now, approval and favor from other people is not a bad thing, but it should never be an ultimate thing. And the book of Esther, in particular, chapter 5, is a powerful example of this. The word favor appears throughout this chapter. It's the Hebrew word for approval. And in this chapter, we see two portraits that serve as our teachers. The first portrait is of Esther. She is a woman who actually receives favor or approval from one of the most powerful people on the planet, and yet she is not controlled by it. But the second portrait is of a man who does seek favor and approval from a powerful person, yet he is desperately controlled by it. And today I want us to see the characteristics of both and what makes all the difference between the two. But to get there, we need to remind ourselves of what is happening. King Xerxes is the king of Persia who ruled and reigned 2,500 years ago, one of the most powerful rulers in history. We learn in this story that he had divorced and eventually banished his first wife, Vashti, and then pushed all these young, beautiful girls into a forced contest in the kingdom to see which one would please the king most. And out of all of them, he chose Esther, not only to be his wife, but his queen. She is Jewish, but no one knows about it except her older cousin, Mordecai, who raised her because she had no mother or father. And during the first few years of her marriage with Xerxes, he appointed this person named Haman, who was his right-hand man, to one of the highest places and positions of power in the kingdom. And he asked everyone to bow to him, and everyone did, except for one man, 
Mordecai. And when Mordecai was asked why he refused to bow and to praise and to give honor to Haman, Mordecai simply replied saying it was because he was a Jew. Now Haman, who was an Agagite, one of the historic enemies of the Jews, he was furious but decided not just to destroy Mordecai, but to destroy all of the Jews. And in the previous chapter, we learned that he got government approval to do just that within a matter of months. The Jews hear this news and go into a time of mourning. Esther, now in the palace, she hears about this and she is in a unique position. It's where the plot hinges in this whole story. Because she is both Jewish and can represent her people, but she is also Persian royalty and has a possibility of approaching the king. She can be a mediator. But there's one little problem. We learned about this in Esther chapter 4. You can only appear before the king if you are invited. He really doesn't want to be interrupted. If you sought his presence uninvited, he'd have his scepter. And if the scepter was tipped towards you, it was a sign of his favor and you were accepted. But if the scepter was held back, you would be killed. Not the kind of thing that you would take lightly. Esther knows this. She even expresses her concern about it. But nonetheless, she takes the risk. Because Esther is now in a different place than she was at the beginning of the story. The current cultural moment, the circumstances, the crisis of her people has actually pressed her to make a decision to know where her true identity lies. And she decided that her identity actually lies outside of the palace. And though she seeks to get the favor of the king to save her people, she is willing to lose her life without the king's approval. And there's a lesson for each one of us. And the first one is this. Esther models for us this truth. We need an approval ultimately that people can't give. See, Esther is a changed woman. She started out with a conflicted identity. But since chapter 4, which many view as a picture of her conversion, she is changed because she has chosen to identify with the people of God. And I want you to notice, friends, that that decision gave her what she needed before she ever went into the throne room of the Persian palace. She did not go into the presence of the king to get confidence. She went into the presence of the king because she already had confidence. She is willing to endure the disapproval of the king for something greater than herself. In other words, she already has something that Xerxes could never give her. And that's what we need, an approval that people can't give. And there's three characteristics about this kind of an identity. The fact that she is free from ultimately needing the king's approval. And they're important for each one of us. Note first, when you are not living for people's favor, you become courageous. Imagine that. Because she said that she would go to see the king no matter what the consequences. And that is what she did. We learn in verse 1 and 2 as we begin our chapter. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the palace in front of the king's hall. 
The king was sitting on his royal throne in the hall facing the entrance. And when he saw Queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased with her. And he held out to her the gold scepter that was in his hand. And so Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. Esther, in this moment, embodies courage. She's courageous because she's willing to embrace the risk of losing her life and the disapproval of the king because she's convinced that there is something far more important that lies outside of the palace. She has something that Xerxes could never give her. It may be that she began in the midst of this crisis for the Jewish people, actually began to remember the story. The story of how God time and time again preserved the Jewish people because God had a plan for the Jewish people. She may have recalled Mordecai, her older cousin, may have reminded her of the promises that God had made to her people over and over again, that God was going to bring salvation through them. And even though they were a weak people, God was going to be strong on their behalf. And it may very well be that as she was reminded of this and as she chose to identify with the people of God, that she has a courage before she ever steps foot in that palace. And as a result, she's willing to stand for what is right, to represent her people regardless of the consequence. I also want you to see how practical this is because now, notice, she's rightly using the position she has in life after she claims her true identity as a woman of God. See, the reason this is important is because all of you right now have a position, and maybe you even have possessions that are meant for a purpose beyond yourself. The position that you have, the influence that you have, whether it's at work or in the home or in your community or at a school or whatever it might be, the position and the influence you have is for a purpose greater than yourself. God doesn't just give you a position right now in life so that you can feel good about yourself. It's for his kingdom purposes. But it's only as we know where our true identity lies as a son or daughter of God that we will begin to use our possessions and our position rightly, which is for the sake of other people. It's not about me. It's not just about what I can put on my resume or to see how many people alike or approve my position in life, it's how can I use my position now for the purposes of God? Are you asking that question, friend? Well, if you're not, you need to be reminded of where your true identity lies. Because when you do, and when you know, I am a child of God, that's the truest thing about me, as a result, you will use what you have for his purpose. Just as it was for Esther, the same is true for us. And that's what gives you courage. And the good news is on that day, as God would have it, she is not killed. But rather, notice, she is welcomed, she is heard, and she is safe. So what would she ask? Well, that leads to the second characteristic. When you aren't living for people's favor, you become compassionate. She's not thinking of herself. Verse 3, then the king asked, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom it will be given to you. So dramatic. <laughs> but imagine you sitting there in that moment 
And the most powerful person in the room says, I will give you whatever you want, up to half the kingdom. Some of us might be tempted. You're like, ooh, I actually had this thing going in here. My older cousin Mordecai was like, save the people. But actually, now that you mention it, maybe there's something else. She could ask for anything. But what she will ask for, as we learn later on, is not related to herself. It's related to other people. Because as a result of this shift of identity, Esther is no longer thinking only of herself. She's thinking of others. And that is why she acts. Because when you live without needing or feeding on approval from people, you can actually begin to live on their behalf. That's how it works. For example, in your job, if you're only trying to win people's favor in your job, and that's why you work so hard, you're not actually serving them, you're serving yourself. For some people, the raise in their job is not just about, you know, like, oh, I, I, can, do, uh, I can do more things. It's a better stewardship of my talents, my gifts, and my abilities. For so many people, it's all about ego and income. But when you're not living for people's favor, you're free from only serving yourself, and you're free to serve other people. When you are not living for people's favor or their approval, you are more free to serve their need and not your own. But how do we live that out? Well, that leads to the third characteristic. Notice, when you aren't living for people's favor, you become wise. That's what I want you to see displayed in, in Esther. There's a courage, there's a compassion, and there's a wisdom. Because she has something that King Xerxes could never give her. What does she say in verse 4 and 5? If it pleases the king, replied Esther, let the king, together with Haman, come today to a banquet I have prepared for him. Bring Haman at once, the king said, so that we may do what Esther asks. So the king and Haman went to the banquet that Esther had prepared. Now, some readers are surprised when they come across this section. Why didn't Esther just reveal everything? Why didn't she just say straight up in that moment what she wanted? Well, with further reflection and further reading, we will learn that she is actually acting with great wisdom. Remember, she hasn't seen the king in a while. We learned in Esther chapter 4, part of the reason she feared going to the king is because the king had not requested her presence in months. And so what she's doing is she's taking steps to ensure a good outcome. She's also using wisdom because she invited Haman, who she knows is the one responsible for the threat against her people. It's wisdom. It wasn't the right time. It wasn't the right situation. It wasn't the right place to raise her request. Her cause was right. She needed to act. But she also needed wisdom. And so I want you to see here that she's not being fake. Esther's being composed. And in that, there's a valuable lesson for us. She realized it's not the time or the place yet to tell the king. And I draw attention to this because I, I want us to see the wisdom that is displayed in her self-control. Because if you're like me, and I would guess some of you are, 
Like me, you might get a little emotionally ahead of your circumstance when you haven't quite gotten your head around the situation or even come up with a plan. And at times, like me, you just end up making the situation worse. My wife can attest to this. <laughs> like you have a holy cause, like now we need to act now because I'm an activator. It's like, whoa, settle down. You need wisdom. Have you prayed yet, Tim? No, we just do it. It's right. Okay, maybe pray. Maybe get counsel of other people. I love this. She's displaying not only courage and not only compassion in her cause, but also wisdom. And so instead of launching out, she's actually building a bridge. And in many ways, I believe she's embodying the wisdom that Jesus would later on tell his disciples about in the gospel accounts when he was getting ready to send out his disciples into the world on mission. And his words are famous. Jesus said this, Behold, in Matthew chapter 10, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So, be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. That's an interesting statement. Just leave it up there for a minute. Let it sink in. Jesus is saying to his followers, the environment in which your mission will take you will not be a favorable one. I send you out as a sheep amongst wolves. There's going to be danger at every corner. And therefore, what do you need? You need to be as wise as a serpent. The serpent was often a, a metaphor for, for cunning. We need to be wise. We need to really think through this because this is a hostile place. Everyone's not, for, oh, I'll just go to the king and he'll give me what I want. It's like, Esther, doesn't work like that. This is a broken world. But be careful because you also need to be as innocent as a dove. And it's this remarkable juxtaposition that is only possible as a follower of Jesus Christ. We need courage. We need compassion. But we also need wisdom. And what I want you to see is that these three qualities, this courage, compassion, and wisdom, they are the results of this shift that has happened in her heart. She gained something that Xerxes could never give her. She had something before she ever went in to the palace. Her decision to identify with the people of God because the palace no longer defines her. She is now thinking of others. And though Esther is requesting approval and favor of the king for this crisis, the risk of his disapproval does not control her. That, friends, is how we ought to live. We need an approval that people can't give. Can approval and favor from your parents and your spouse and your friends and your community be a good thing? Sure, but it should never be an ultimate thing. We need to be able to go into every situation already having something that people could never give to us. Now, this is an important lesson because by contrast, we see and learn from Haman this lesson. We not only need an approval that people can't give, we also need an approval that people can't take. If Esther is a model of living without the need for people's approval, Haman, the villain of the story, if you will, is the opposite. He's not living from a place of approval. He is living 
before approval. His identity is tied to everything that is about the palace and the position. Esther found her identity outside of the palace. Haman finds his identity, identity totally tied to the palace, which actually, by the way, explains all of his behavior and his emotions in the story. And there's two characteristics here that are very important for us. Note, this is the first. When you live for people's approval, it controls your joy. It totally determines the joy that you have in life, as it did for Haman. Look at verses 6 through the beginning of verse 9. As they were drinking wine, the king again asked Esther, Now, what is your petition? It will be given you. And what is your request? Even up to half the kingdom it will be granted. And Esther replied, with wisdom, I might add, My petition and my request is this. If the king regards me with favor, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come tomorrow to the banquet I will prepare for them. Then I will answer the king's question. And how did this impact Haman? Verse 9. Haman went out that day happy and in high spirits. Haman was overjoyed. Haman was elated. Because what we learn about Haman in the story is not just that he craved power. He wanted to be viewed as powerful. Haman didn't just want to be significant. He wanted to be viewed by other people as significant. In many ways, Haman is a cautionary tale of what happens when your life is controlled by people's approval. If that's the case, then it will also control your joy. And how many of us are there, perhaps to a lesser degree, but let's be honest, when other people view you well, you're doing well. Like, you're, you're like you, you can hear all the truths about God and about his grace and his love in church, but like, man, if somebody else gives you the pat on the back, you're not just like, you know, happy about it. You're elated. You're like, yeah, I heard at church God loves me, but oh, this person loves me. Oh, I'm on top of the world. And you begin to feed on it. You crave for it. You begin to look for it. It's what we call fishing for compliments. You're like, hey, how did I do today? And like, you did amazing. You're like, what? No. They're like, actually, there's no one like you. You're like, don't. Stop. Don't stop. Because you're feeding on it. You're like, I need the approval. Approve me. And when you get it, you're like, yes, cloud nine. You're walking around with a strut in your step. I'm approved. I have their favor. Like Haman on that day, I was invited by the queen, the king to their feast, and I was invited again. Your joy will be controlled by their approval. You say, well, what's so bad about that? Well, not only are you looking in the wrong place for ultimate approval, but here's what happens. Whenever you're challenged, whenever you're disapproved, unfavored, your joy will disappear. Because here's another corollary truth. When you live for people's approval, 
it also determines your grief. And we see this in Haman. Notice what he does. This is wild. End of verse 9. But when he saw Mordecai at the king's gate and observed that he neither rose nor showed fear in his presence, he was filled with rage against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. He shows character. What did he do? He called together his friends and Zeresh, his wife, and Haman boasted to them about his vast wealth, his many sons, and all the ways the king had honored him, and how he had elevated him above other nobles and officials. And that's not all, Haman added. I'm the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet she gave, and she has invited me along with the king tomorrow. Pause. Do you see what's happening with this guy? He literally throws a party for himself. He invites his, his wife. He's like, honey, let's get all the friends around. And everyone's there for his backyard barbecue. And he's like, you know, ding, ding, ding. Like everyone, everyone, I would just like to take this moment to acknowledge how much prominence I have in the kingdom and how many relatives I have. This is, and, and the position that I have is the highest. And everyone's like, mm, wow, yes, Haman, we know. It's so great. And also to top it off, not only have I been to the banquet with the king and queen, but I've been invited back tomorrow. And everyone's like, ooh, he's invited back. He's full of joy, or so you would think, until we get to verse 13. In a pouty manner, he says, but all this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. See, as he leaves the party, elated in high spirits because he views that approval as his full identity, he then sees Mordecai and it completely ruins him because Mordecai is the one person that will not approve him in the way that he desires. And he says all these other things give me no satisfaction because this one person will not view me in the way I believe he ought. And we see here in Haman that his whole world revolved around his ego. When he was honored, when he was approved, he's overjoyed. But when he is disapproved and rejected, he is absolutely devastated. Approval from people was essentially his idol. And so I want you to notice, because the text draws our attention to his emotional life, if I can put it that way, his emotions then, listen, were simply an outward expression of what he really valued in his life. I highlight that because the same is true for us. Our, our emotional reactions, our expressions are very often a reflection of what we really value in life. So that when someone disapproves of us and we are just absolutely ruined by it, our emotional outburst over that reveals how strong and how much power that person has over our lives. Likewise, when they approve us or favor us and we're elated, it also shows 
how much power their approval has in our life. And so my question is this, what do your outward expressions reveal about what you truly value? Whether people approve you or disapprove you, whether you gain their favor or you lose their favor. When you respond, when you react, what do your expressions reveal about what you truly value? Because in Haman, there's a warning for us. Or let's put it this way. Here's an interesting thought. Imagine you're at Haman's party and you're invited and after his self-congratulations speech, you had a moment to talk to Haman. You had a moment, an opportunity to give him some counsel. What would you say to Haman? What would you say to him? What kind of advice and counsel would you give to him? I ask that because we're actually told what his wife and his friends said, and it is wild. Okay, like if there was a show called The Real Housewives of Persia, like Zeresh is in it. Look at verse 14. This is, her, this is their counsel. After he's like, I was with the king and I was a lady, but I saw Mordecai and it took all my joy away. Zeresh, in verse 14, his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, oh honey, have a pole set up reaching to a height of 50 cubits and ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai impaled on it. Then go, to the, go with the king to the banquet and enjoy yourself. Those are your friends. Like that's your spouse. Like, oh honey, it's okay. Just impale them. It'll be fine. Just, just destroy them. Torture them. S slow death. Then, then you can go to the party and you can enjoy yourself. And so, of course, the very end of the chapter is this line. This suggestion delighted Haman. <laughs> He's like, that in, the, in his backyard? What a, what a great idea. Impaling. Why didn't I think about that? And so what did he do? He had the pole, or some translations say the gallows, set up. Their counsel was not to kill off the pride of Haman. They actually fed his pride. They did not tell him that he needed to deal with his deep, inordinate need for recognition. Their advice is that he feed it. They did not tell him, Haman, you have a void in your heart that no one else can fill. So I think you're overreacting here. How amazing would it have been if someone were at Haman's little party and said, Haman, let me, let me say something to you. You have a void, you have a need for approval, but it can't be found in the approval that anyone can give. The good news is that your well-being will not be destroyed if it's kept from you. Let me tell you about the God of the Bible who loves people in spite of their sin and he forgives them and brings them into his family. How great would it have been if Haman heard that news on that day? He could be shown that the world does not revolve around him. The world revolves around God but instead they feed his ego. Now today we can't speak to Haman, but we can deal with our own hearts. 
And so I'm inviting us to be transparent before God and with ourselves and ask, where is our joy totally connected to other people's approval? Where is our joy totally connected ultimately to other people's approval? And also this, where is our fear connected to their disapproval? Where we think to ourselves, oh, if they, if they disapprove me, it's not just going to hurt. I will be ruined for life. Because we need to be careful. Because some of us may be going so far as to make gallows in our own hearts, even if we never made them in real life. I need to get rid of this people. They're not honoring me the, the way that I, that I think. And all my decisions need to revolve around getting what I think that I need from people. What we need, friends, is an approval beyond what broken people can give. What we need is an approval beyond what broken people can take. What we need is the approval of God. That is what we need. So there is good news here. Because with Esther, we are given a glimpse of the courage and the freedom and the compassion and the wisdom that comes from living free from the need of people's favor and acceptance. But this freedom only came for her when she chose to identify with the people of God. And I love this because like we've seen before throughout this book, there are themes and there are patterns in Esther which actually foreshadow the truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, the first steps towards the deliverance of her people actually points towards a greater deliverance for all people. Notice how the chapter began. It was on the third day after her decision to identify with the people of God, that she appears in royal robes before the king. I highlight this because the Jewish rabbis and other commentators, I find this so interesting, they note that again and again in the Old Testament, three days is both a pattern and a symbol we see throughout the scriptures. There is a pattern of deliverance for the people of God that comes on the third day. You can see where this is going. It's great. For Abraham, it was on the third day that a sacrifice was provided by God in the place of his son Isaac for their sins. For the prophet Jonah that we learned about earlier this summer, it was on the third day that his life was spared from the watery grave of the sea. It became a symbol, so much so that in the Old Testament, the prophet Hosea said that on the third day, God would restore his people. And here, the deliverance for the people of God is initiated on the third day after Esther's decision when the royal scepter is extended in her favor. And on that day, Life was granted instead of death. This is a foreshadow of the grace given to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because the good news is this. On the third day after Jesus, the Son of God, came to die on a cross 
for all of our sins on the third day. Jesus rose again. The third day was proof that that penalty for our sin that we deserve had been paid. Proof that Jesus was true and right in everything that he did. The third day was proof that he had gained a victory over sin, Satan, demons, and death. The third day, his victorious resurrection guarantees the favor of God for everyone who receives his invitation. That is amazing. It means when you trust in Christ, you are clothed with the royal robes of acceptance and approval. That is how God sees you today. And in light of the gospel, the parallels and contrasts come into an incredible light. And this is what the approval of God means for every one of you if your faith is in Christ. First, the approval of God means you are welcomed. Do you know that? Approaching God is not like approaching King Xerxes, or other people for that matter, where you wonder whether or not you're going to survive the encounter. Do you ever feel like that when somebody calls you? I know I do. Certain phone calls, you get it, and you're like, oh dear, will I survive this encounter? And there's that like green button and the red button. You're like, ah, <laughs> do I go in? Do I pull out? I don't know. Unlike King Xerxes with God, we don't have to wonder whether or not they're going to approve or disapprove. And yet many of us live like that with God. We're like, we're wondering on a Sunday morning, like, oh, I know the gospel's good, but will God accept me? I don't know. I don't know. One day I might be welcomed, another day I might not be welcomed, but friend, it is not so with our God. On the contrary, God, because of Jesus, invites us into his presence freely, continually, and boldly to know him, to be with him. You are welcomed in Christ. Secondly, the approval of God means you are heard. He listens to you. He hears your prayers because talking with God is not like talking to King Xerxes. Isn't that wonderful? <laughs> it means we don't have to be diplomatic or subtle in our communication with him. To be sure, Esther, for Esther, it was wisdom that led her to speak in such a subtle way. And that is necessary for all of us in an unsafe and unpredictable world where broken people rule but not so with our God. We do not need to lay out a feast for him to incline his heart to us. He lays out a feast for us because his heart is already inclined towards you. There's a feast waiting for you. He says, come in and dine. We don't have to trick God into giving us good things. It means today you don't have to pray with like, you know, trying to manipulate God. Like, oh God, if I say the right things, like maybe you'll give me what I need. It's not like that. Unlike the strategy and subtlety and caution that Esther needed before a bad king, remember the encouragement of the apostle Paul who says, don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation, bring it to prayer and petition with thanksgiving. Present all of your requests to God. And you can do so without fear. Because lastly, the approval of God means you are safe. 
Just as the moving of the scepter towards Esther guaranteed her safety on that day, so the finished work of Jesus on the cross secures us before God today. The cost is free to us, but it was infinite to Christ. Because as sinners, the wages of sin before a holy God are death. But here's the gospel. On the day that Jesus died on the cross, the sword of judgment that we deserve came down on Jesus so that the scepter of favor could come to us. It means we do not need to put our life on the line before the king to gain his favor. The king already put his life on the line to grant us his favor. That's the good news. And so how do we respond? I think Hebrews chapter 4 says it best. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. That's God's word to you. He says, come boldly. What do you need? Come. Where is it that your view needs to be corrected? Where is it that you need to be healed of the disapproval of others? Many of us, we have father wounds, we have mother wounds, we have wounds from our peers because they disapproved of us. Friends, let me tell you this. I acknowledge and I can testify to the fact that other people's disapproval has brought great wounds to our lives and even my life. But listen, friend, in Christ, you have all the approval that you need and his approval ultimately is the only approval that matters. Because in Jesus Christ, you are a child of God. In Jesus Christ, you are loved, you are accepted, you are welcomed, you are safe, you are secure because you are his child. And he invites you to come and to cast your cares upon him. Where is it that you need courage? Maybe some of you need deep healing because of the disapproval that you've experienced in your life, God wants to heal that this morning. And he's gonna heal it with the favor that he gives to you. He says, I love you. I accept you. I clothe you with robes. The scepter of favor has already been tipped towards you, so come on in. You're my child. So if you've been welcomed, draw near today. If you are heard, then speak freely and bring all your requests to him this morning. And if you are safe, then you can rest assured you are accepted by God. And I invite you right now, I even challenge you to be bold in how you respond right now in praise and in prayer. As John Newton reminds us in one of his famous hymns, thou art coming to a king, large petitions with thee bring, for his grace and power are such, none can ever ask too much. God says, I've laid a feast for you and I'm asking you to dine. We have an opportunity to do that right now. So let's pray. Father, I pray first and foremost for anyone in this room who has not yet received the invitation of Jesus Christ as Savior. I pray that right now, whether they're watching at home online or in this room, I pray that right now from their heart, they would simply say, Jesus, I believe you died on a cross for me. I believe you rose again. I trust in you as my savior. Forgive me and accept me 
pray that those men and women would do that right now and know that they have the favor of God. And Father, right now for your church, I pray that we would not hold back in our response, but that we would come boldly into your throne of grace, that we would ask for courage where we need courage, compassion where we need compassion, wisdom where we need wisdom, knowing that in Christ we are clothed in your royal robes of acceptance. That is how you see us as a beloved daughter, as a beloved son, forgiven, accepted, welcomed, heard, safe. So I pray that we would enjoy your presence now and I pray that you'd heal any wounds of disapproval, free us of any way in which we're living for the approval of others and may we just delight in the approval you've given to us in Christ. And it's in his name we pray, amen. Friends, I'm aware that what we just went to God for in prayer is what this moment right now is all about. It's about pressing in. That The door is open. The responsibility for you is not to make a way. The responsibility for you is to take advantage of the way that Jesus has already made. And so this morning, if your trust is in Jesus, I'm calling you to take communion this morning. I'm calling you to come forward and take the bread and drink the cup, remembering what it cost Christ so that you could be brought in. He went under the sword of judgment so that you could have the scepter of favor. Come and celebrate that today. Maybe you just gave your life to Jesus right now. This can be your first act as a Christian, saying, I'm going to declare that I am now a child of God because I believed in Jesus. So come forward and eat the bread and drink the, the cup in remembrance of what Jesus has done for us. Let's come down to the carpets. Let's get on our knees and let's worship and rejoice and delight in the fact that we're accepted. And let's bring big requests to God. There are men and women up here to my right and to my left. They're gonna have the prayer lanyards up here. And friend, I invite you to come up and pray where you need wisdom, healing, courage. Just come up and pray. There's no request too big, no request too small. Watch what God will do. The feast is laid out. He says to you, come, ask, watch what I will do. May God stir up faith in our hearts because of the favor he's given to us. So let's not waste this moment. Let's press in right now. God wants us to see ourselves and others as he sees us in Christ. So let's press in right now that that might happen in every one of our hearts.